word from the Lord that we will be reading today will be in the uh, book of Zechariah. Uh, we'll be reading chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. I will give y'all a minute to get there uh, for those of us who are here and have Bibles or if you're at, at home and you're watching. All right, the Word of God says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, and that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments. Uh, and he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I, I think I just read this. I'm sorry. Oh, forgive me. Verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Good morning. Oh, thankfully the mic's working the first time. <laughs> Honestly, this is my first time preaching for you all, and so I'm very excited. And more than that, I'm excited to be able to share this particular passage. If you guys don't know already, I've been trying to learn more about the Minor Prophets, getting more familiar with them. And so just throughout this time this year, as I was going through the Minor Prophets, Zechariah chapter 3, it particularly stuck out for me. And so I hope it's just as edifying for you guys as it is for me. And so if we could just dive into the book of Zechariah, particularly chapter 3, you'll notice that it begins with a court case, right? A court case is already underway. And certainly in the modern day, we're no strangers to what a courtroom looks like, what court cases looks like. Think about all the TV shows such as Law and Order, right, and every variant of it. Think of Judge Judy, right? And if it wasn't just the TV shows, there's also podcasts, right? All these true crime genres. There's a lot of ways in which we are very familiar with the court system. And although these cases may be interesting to watch, interesting to hear, there's no court case that is more significant than the one that involves you, the one that concerns you. For example, if you get a speeding ticket and you went a little bit too high and they call you to court, that's going to be on your mind for a while. 
Or if you're a child, right, and, and you do something wrong and your parents are deliberating, how should we punish him? How should we respond? It's a small court. It's a family court, but it's a court nonetheless. And of course, there are much more significant court cases in history. Think about Brown versus Board of Education, right? Miranda versus the state of Arizona, or Roe versus Wade. The last one in particular, it's so significant that though it was such an old case from 71, 1971 to 73, it's been recently overturned. It doesn't matter where you stand on these particular cases, the verdicts of these cases, they have national impact. And this is where Zechariah chapter 3 comes in hand. You see, Zechariah chapter 3, it is an example of a court case in Scripture on that national level of significance. There are national impacts, even universal impacts, of this case's final verdict. And so naturally, we have to ask the question, what's at stake here? Why was this court case so significant to the Israelites who lived more than 2,600 years ago? But perhaps even more significantly, even more importantly for us, what is the significance of this court case for us who are living in the 21st century? Well, for the Israelites, the one standing trial, the defendant, he's a person of utmost importance. Just as a prime minister or a president would represent a nation today, In Israel, in those days, Scripture, right, it would present a king as the representative of the nation. However, this was a unique period in Israel's history, a time when there was no ruling king in the nation of Israel. After all, the people of God had recently returned from exile. That is, they'd been banished, they'd been oppressed for 70 years in a foreign nation. And now, finally, they were able to return. And when they saw their cities... Its walls, its temple were in ruin. Or in other words, the Israelites are returning to a situation where their community life, where their worship life are in disarray. The very things that identify them as a nation, the things that gave them confidence that we are in fact God's people, they were in shambles. And can you imagine this? The people of God finally returning to their nation and temple with such high hopes, ready to restore things again. After all, for the people of God, it's exciting to be able to restore, to reestablish regular patterns of life and worship. And yet when they return, they're met with great resistance. They find that restoring a sense of community, restoring a sense of worship, it's a very difficult thing. It's tiring, and it makes you wonder, is it even worth it? They're wrestling with God's love, right? They're asking themselves, has God abandoned us? They're wrestling with God's goodness. God, don't you want to see us grow and be happy as your people? Ultimately, they're wrestling with their faith. Is God worth my sacrifice, my sorrow, and my suffering? And in many ways, perhaps this isn't too different from your own experience these past years. Perhaps this time of physical return to both community and worship has been particularly difficult for you. Whether you're in leadership, whether you're serving, and you're trying to encourage people and it's not working. Or whether you're simply struggling to find enough motivation to attend a single Sunday worship, to come out to a single CG, to attend events, to even meet with a single person. Again, it's in the midst of these difficult questions that this vision is given to the prophet Zechariah, 
We see in verse 1, standing at center stage, none other than Joshua the high priest. There's still hope in a time when Israel had no ruling king. They still had one other who could stand as their representative. It's the high priest, the one who would stand before God on behalf of his people. In other words, Joshua the high priest, he's standing on trial as the representative of the people of God. And therefore, the outcome of this trial, it impacts the entire people of God, whether they be the people of God living 2,600 years ago or whether they be the people of God living today. The impacts of this case, the verdict of this case, it has universal impact. And so in search of such hope, we'll be examining three scenes of this particular court case. And these three scenes, they're going to serve as our headings for this morning. We see the first scene in verses 1 to 3. The people of God are convicted. The second scene we see in verses 4 to 7. The people of God are cleansed. And the final scene, it's seen in verses 8 through 10. The people of God are comforted. Again, the people of God are convicted. The people of God are cleansed. And the people of God are comforted. And so we turn now to our first scene. The people of God are convicted in verses 1 through 3, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. If you've ever heard the popular phrase, the devil, the devil is in the details. Well, look no further than verse 1. There he is. But as we take a moment to look at the devil in more detail, what exactly is he doing here? Why is he here in this passage? Well, the latter half of verse 1 tells us that he was standing at his right hand to accuse him. But notice that in this section, even in this entire chapter, there's no single verbal accusation. We can't find an actual legitimate accusation. At best, we get a description of Joshua in verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. When we read that as the only accusation, it doesn't sound too bad, does it? If the best accusation that Satan has against Joshua is simply dirty clothes, it doesn't seem like he has much of a case against him. In fact, it feels like Satan is silent because he has no proper accusation. After all, I'm sure all of us, we've worn clothes that have not been washed for a little too long. Or we've had to deal with sweaty gym clothes. We've had to deal with children's muddy clothes, your own muddy clothes, or snot-covered clothing. It really, it really doesn't sound like such a big deal that he has dirty garments. That is until you realize that the English translation, it really tones down the word filthy. The filthiness of Joshua's garments, it's toned down in the English. This word for filthy, it's not the same as sweaty. It's not the same as grimy or dirty or even muddy. Rather, the best translation would be garments covered from top to bottom in feces. Clothing covered in poop. Right? He's stained in poop, and he's standing before the holy God. And right, there's, there's surely a reason that babies cry when they soil their pants. 
There's certainly a reason that any human is embarrassed if their underwear is poop-stained, or if they accidentally poop their pants in public, or if you have a pet dog who just loves to roll around and poop, to eat other dog poop, maybe his own poop. There's a reason that we're disgusted, that we're shocked by such behavior. It's improper, it's unhygienic, it's unsightly, right? The list could go on and on and on. Why it's such a disgusting behavior, and yet it gets worse than that. Remember the context, remember who Joshua is and who he's supposed to represent. He's the high priest. He's the man who stands as the representative of the people of God as a whole. And now, how does he show up to court when he's arguing for his people? The representative, the representative of God's people, he comes to court stained in poop, covered in poop, and he stands before the presence of a holy God. And this is not just the physical state of Joshua. We could say this is a way to sum up the spiritual state of the people of God. They're covered in filth, they're covered in sin, brothers and sisters. If we could just see how truly filthy our sins are, how revolting they are, the guilt alone would be sufficient to crush us. Satan would have no need to utter a single accusation because we can see how filthy we are. We ourselves are our own worst accusation. And yet, this isn't often the case, is it? Unfortunately, we're not so privy into the depths of our sins. If we could simply see how disgusting sin truly was, surely we'd flee from it. And yet, that's not the case. Sin, sin is enticing, it's intoxicating. Sin often attracts us far more often than it repels us. It's to the point of being irresistible in many ways. But that's not the greatest danger of sin. The greatest danger of sin is not its enticing nature. It's the fact that sin entraps us. Sin lulls us into a state of normalcy. Sin reverses our moral compass so that we call what is good evil and we call what is evil good. What more, sin lulls us into a state of complacency. After all, what's one more step into the water when you're already neck deep? What's one more step? And you see, this is Satan's greatest tool. It's to make you focus upon yourself, especially concerning this life. It's all about my sin, my suffering, my state and status. It's about me, myself, and I. And yet, in the midst of conviction, we hear a voice much louder than the devil's silent accusations. The Lord begins to speak in verse 2. And surprisingly, the holy God standing before a filthy sinner, he doesn't rebuke Joshua for being so filthy. Rather, he begins to further drown out Satan's silent accusations. Right? The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? We see that though Joshua, as the representative of God's people, looks like a filthy convict in the eyes of Satan, perhaps even in his own eyes as he doesn't dare to utter a single defense for himself, we see that God has not condemned Joshua. Ultimately, the people of God, they may be convicted, but they are not condemned. 
The Lord is unwilling to share his people with Satan. He declares they are mine. And though there was a period of exile, though they were cast into the fire like a brand, which is a burning piece of wood, they were not, they will not be consumed by this fire. Judgment is not ultimately going to consume them. And we'll see this most clearly when we look at the details of verse 1 a little bit more closely. After all, God is also in the details. Notice where everyone is standing in relation to one another in this courtroom. Notice where the positioning is, right? The placement in a courtroom, it dictates power. It dictates roles. It dictates responsibilities. And what's obvious about this passage is that Joshua, the high priest, he's standing before the angel of the Lord. But where is Satan standing in relation to everyone else. You see, for some reason, we've grown accustomed to this idea of good versus evil, as if they're in a constant, eternal stalemate with one another. We like to believe that the devil is on one shoulder and God is on the other as they wrestle, as they fight for our attention and our affection. So naturally, when we read verse 1, we might read it as if Joshua, standing before God, is also standing before Satan, and Satan is ready to whisper over his shoulder and tell God, this is my accusation against this man. But notice, right, grammatically, it doesn't fit the double pronouns, his right hand to accuse him that we see in verse 1. In both the Hebrew and in the English, the pronouns his and him, they must refer to the same person unless the context dictates otherwise. In this context, it gives us no reason to believe that the pronoun his and him refer to two different people. Therefore, they must refer both to Joshua. And I know this may sound tedious, unnecessary, but the payoff is that we're able to see the great disparity between Satan's authority in comparison to God's authority. We see that God and Satan, they're not on equal grounds. Both Joshua and Satan, they must stand before the Almighty Judge, God himself. Or in other words, Joshua, he's not standing on trial before Satan and God. Both Joshua and Satan are standing trial. And so Satan, what he's doing here is merely diverting the focus away from himself and trying to put the focus upon Joshua. Look at him and what he's done wrong. Look how filthy this man is. And what we see then is that the most important verdict, it's not what Satan has to say about you. It's not even what you have to believe about yourself. The most important verdict is what God declares about you, what God declares about your life and your innocence. What God says, what God declares is more important than anyone else's words. And so let's more carefully examine just what did the Lord declare as we turn to our second scene. The people of God are cleansed in verses 4 to 7. Starting with verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. 
And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you right of access among those who are standing here. If the previous section, if the chapter had simply ended, it had concluded with God silencing Satan and nothing else, just silencing Satan, defending Joshua, there'd be a lot left to be desired. If this was the conclusion, it's as if God is saying, Joshua's innocent merely because I said so. And someone could easily raise the charge that God is unjust here. Or that faith is meaningless because God could just simply dismiss the trial. He could simply declare his people free, innocent, willy-nilly. But that's not how this chapter ends. We see that God doesn't just dismiss the trial. He doesn't simply end with silence and Satan. Nor does he leave Joshua in his filthy garments. God, he cannot ignore the critical issue. If the big problem of the passage was a filthy convict standing in the presence of a holy God, it's God who must provide the solution as well. God doesn't simply tell Joshua, return once, once you've cleaned yourself. Return when you're clean, and then I'll declare your innocence. Rather, God exonerates Joshua. That is, God declares Joshua's innocent. And it happens when God gives his verdict, as we see in verse 4. His verdict is this, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. In other words, God declares, You are innocent because I have cleansed you of your guilt. You're innocent because I have cleansed you. And we see what power and authority that God has with, with a single declaration. God is able to strip us of our sins as if they're simply dirty clothing. The guilt that we could never wash away. No matter how much we scrubbed or searched for solutions on our own, God is able in a single breath with one declaration, be cleansed. Wear your filthy garments no longer. God is able to wash away your sins no matter how filthy, no matter how grave they may be. Brothers and sisters, sin is not a stumbling block to God's plans. Sin does not stumble God's plans. But if you are struggling with sin, if you're struggling with guilt or baggage, if you've convinced yourselves that no one can forgive this, no one can take away this guilt, take heart, for your God is able. He is able to wash away your deepest stains and shame. What more? Take heart, because you are not alone in your walk of faith. For you see, when we look into the midst of this cleansing process, the prophet Zechariah, he does something shocking as he suddenly interjects in verse 5. Notice he suddenly says, And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. But what makes this interjection so shocking is that apart from the Lord or the angel of the Lord, Zechariah is the only other person in this chapter to utter even a single word. The Lord speaks and Zechariah 
is able to speak here. In this chapter, Satan is silent. In this chapter, Joshua, the high priest, the representative, is silent. Even the angel who's showing this vision to Zechariah, the prophet, he's silent. And adding to the shock factor, the ones who strip and clothe Joshua, we see that they listen to Zechariah's request. We, also, we see this in verse 5 also. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothe him with garments. And so naturally this begs the question, why does Zechariah do this? Why does he interject? Although a negative argument can be made that Zechariah finds the garments, this, these pure vestments, inadequate when comparing them to what seems to be high priestly uniform, right? The high priest's uniform or, or garments, right? You would require a turban as well as his clothes. The lack of a rebuke in this passage it seems to suggest otherwise, right? Zechariah doesn't see this clothing as inadequate, right? So if we take this positively instead, it's not that Zechariah finds the garments inadequate. It's that Zechariah, he's compelled. He's compelled by compassion. Zechariah, he saw the filthy state of Joshua. He's covered in poop. And remember that Joshua, he's representing the people of God. So his compassion, his great heart, it compels him to beg that it's not just Joshua's body, but from head to toe be covered to be fully clothed. Maybe a light comparison might be to Peter when his Lord goes to wash his feet. Moved by the actions of his Lord, what does Peter say? He pleads for more. He says, Lord, not just my feet, but also my hands and my head. Peter, he's moved by the Lord's mercy, by the Lord's humility, and he pleads for more. But unlike, unlike Peter, who says, more for me, Zechariah, he's pleading more on behalf of Joshua. He says, Lord, more. Please wash and cover not only his body, but his head also. He's pleading on behalf of the people of God. Cover them fully, Lord. Let them not be naked. Let there be not a single spot where they are unclothed. And so Zechariah's heart, it actually fits in line with God's heart, as we've seen in verse 5. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. He doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to do anything. Because Zechariah has done nothing wrong. In fact, Zechariah has imitated God's heart. He's done the right thing. And could you imagine if this is how we lived? If we lived with such compassion for one another, if we were so deeply moved by the prospect of one another's holiness that we would plead with God, cover this brother, cover this sister, so that he or she would be covered head to toe in your garments, in your holiness. Lord, leave them not naked. And Zechariah's interjection, it moves us to realize that there is indeed a proper response to cleansing. There is a proper response to when we are cleansed. For Joshua, right, we see a progression from his pronounced innocence to his cleansing, which is now followed by his commissioning. God gives a charge to Joshua. The people of God, they are cleansed and they are commissioned. And we see this in verses 6 through 7. God assures Joshua with what is the typical if-then statement 
given to the representative of God's people. This is usually the promise that God gives to whoever is the representative of God's people, whether it be a king, whether it be a patriarch, whoever it may be. And what does he say here? He says, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then I will grant you these benefits. In this particular case, verse 7 shows us that authority and access to God's household and kingdom are the benefits of obedience. If, there were, if, Zechariah, if Joshua would obey, not only him, but the people of God have authority. They have access into God's kingdom and his household. What we see then is that God's goal is not merely a sinless people. It's not a people with blank slates that he desires. God requires his people to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. God wants more than simply sinlessness. God wants you to be like him in every respect, to be holy as he is holy. Or in other words, having been cleansed by God, our only proper response ought to be a growing obedience to him. When you are cleansed, your response, to be, your response ought to be a growing obedience. But perhaps at this point, you notice the big flaw, the big problem of this charge. This isn't the first time that the people of God have received the promise tied to their obedience, tied to the benefits of that obedience. In fact, their failure to obey God's promise, if you do, if you walk in my ways, then I will prosper you. It's what led to their exile in the first place. They were called out of slavery and sin. They were called into the promised land. But even in the promised land, they continued to live as slaves to sin. And so what hope of obedience did they have now? And certainly this isn't a foreign concept to us. Surely, when you first believed, you were on fire. You were passionate. Surely there's been periods of great spiritual heights and fervor in your life, your walk with God. But how long until that fervor starts to lose steam? How long until you start reverting back to your old ways and habits? It doesn't take us long to realize that our obedience is so imperfect, that it's hard to have perfect obedience, that if the benefits of this promise is left to us in our obedience, we'd fail 10 times out of 10. And if that's where this chapter ended, of course we'd be hopeless. But thankfully, the passage continues onwards. The people of God, they are convicted but not condemned. They are cleansed and commissioned. And now we move on to our third and final scene. The people of God are comforted. There is a comfort to be seen in verses 8 through 10. Starting in verse 8. Hear now, o Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite 
his neighbors to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And so verse 8, it doesn't leave us hanging. It begins immediately with great assurance. Here now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Brothers and sisters, the joy, the comfort that we have is that the people of God, they are but a sign. They are not the thing itself, but they point to the greater reality. And the greater reality is God's promise. Behold, I will bring my branch. I will bring my servant, the branch. And what is the branch? The branch is a messianic title, a sign that describes God's chosen Messiah, God's chosen Savior of his people. And if that wasn't enough, if the branch wasn't enough, if it wasn't clear enough in verse 9, God gives another sign of his Savior. For behold, on that stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. The branch, the stone, they are two signs of the coming Savior. Three signs if you also include the people of God. Therefore, we see that God, he gives ample signs, ample ways to show his people just how he's going to fulfill his grand plan to remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In other words, although the people of God are called to obedience and the benefits of that promise of authority and access are tied to that obedience, it isn't the obedience of the people of God we are to depend upon, right? Although the people of God are called to obedience, the benefits of the promise are tied to that obedience. It isn't the obedience of the people of God we depend, that we rely upon. Although God gives this charge to Joshua the high priest as a representative of the people of God, this isn't actually the right Joshua the high priest. This isn't the Joshua, the high priest, who will fulfill the requirements of perfect obedience on behalf of the people of God. This is why verses 8 through 9 serve as a comfort for the people of God. For though obedience is indeed required of the people of God, it's not their obedience that secures the benefits of that promise. Although obedience is required of the people of God, it's not their obedience that secures the benefits of the promise. Again, this is why the people of God, they are but a sign. They point to the greater person of God. They point to the greatest high priest, and he is the greatest Joshua. If you know a little bit of Hebrew, or if you know anything about the name Joshua, Yeshua, it literally translates to Yahweh saves. Yahweh will save. God will save us. And it's the same name that is given to God's chosen Savior of his people. Jesus, Jesus, Joshua, it is the same name. It's because of Jesus' perfect obedience to the requirements of his promise, of this promise. His perfect obedience to the requirements of this promise on behalf of the people of God, that the people of God can actually enjoy the benefits of the promise. And this is usually where the confusion begins. How can obedience be required of the people of God, and yet disobedience does not disqualify the people of God? Or perhaps to put it another way, 
What is the relationship between faith and works then? What is the relationship between faith and works? Well, I found that there is a, there is a helpful illustration, right? It's, it's the illustration of the humble Costco card, right? Obedience or good works. It's like my Costco card. It's what allows me entrance into the store and to enjoy the benefits of the store. And what happens if I don't have my card? I'm denied entrance. I'm unable to enjoy these benefits. I'm unable to have confidence I can get in. And you may be a little confused here. How is this any different from earning my way into salvation? Right? Isn't the Costco card my way into salvation then? Well, the big difference is that I don't pay for my membership. My father pays for it. And you can see now why it's such a perfect illustration. When you look closely, right, although it's my father who pays for the membership, it's my name, it's my picture that's actually upon the card itself. My dad pays for it, but it's my card. And the same is true with faith and works. Salvation is indeed through faith alone, but our good works, it serves to identify us. It serves to identify us as God's chosen people. Faith, it grants us access to good works. It's not the other way around. No amount of good works will give you faith, but faith will genuinely lead to good works. For faith, what does faith declare? It declares, I believe I'm a sinner, and I believe that I need Christ alone as my Savior and Lord. And what does good works declare? Good works declares, I trust I trust Christ alone as my Lord and Savior. In other words, faith, it's the expression of our belief. Obedience is the expression of our trust. Faith will express, I believe in you. Obedience will express, I trust in you. And so naturally, how can we express our trust this morning? Well, notice that the passage, it ends in an interesting way. It doesn't leave us scrambling for answers, and it doesn't lead to perhaps what you were expecting. Verse 10, it gives us one way to express our trust, right? In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. On which day? Well, we've already established it. it says it in verse 9 the day that the lord will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day and what was that day if not the day that the lord jesus was crucified the day that had come to pass when our lord our savior was hung upon the cursed tree it was on that day the lord removed the iniquity of this land in a single day and he did so by removing the iniquity and placing it upon Christ. The reason that the filthy rags were removed from Joshua's body was because it would be placed upon Christ's body. The reason that we no longer have to live in our filth and our sin is because it was put upon Christ. And the opposite certainly holds true as well. The reason that Joshua is able to be clothed with pure vestments, a clean turban, it's because they were stripped from Christ's own body. 
right? The clean turban Joshua could enjoy because Christ would wear the crown of thorns on his behalf. The people of God, they are ultimately comforted because they have been claimed by Christ on the cross. The people of God are comforted because they are Christ. Because of Christ's death on the cross, he was able to forgive the sins of his people beyond time, beyond space, past, present, and future. He claims the benefits of this promise through his perfect obedience on behalf of you and me. Because Jesus would take the thorns, we can enjoy the fruit of the vine thornless. And this vine, right, it symbolizes satisfaction and joy. In Jesus, you can have satisfaction. You can have joy. Because of Jesus, who took the cursed tree, who was hung upon it, we can find rest under his fig tree. The fig tree, which symbolizes blessing, security. In Jesus, you have full access to satisfaction and joy, as well as blessings and security. They're yours to fully receive, freely receive in Christ alone. They're yours. Take them. And so the question is this. This is where we conclude. If the day, if that day has already come to pass, if we're already able to enjoy his vine and his fig tree as our own, that there is a foretaste of that beautiful benefit, who then is our neighbor? Who do you need to share these fruits of Christ's victory? Can you think of broken people desperately searching to find satisfaction or joy in this life? Can you think of restless people who desire such security, who need the confidence that they are blessed fully and freely? You see, our open invitation to our neighbors it confidently declares to them. It reminds us as well. Our God, he has defeated our iniquity. God has won. Sin is made no more. The sting of death is no more. And of course, this invitation, it has to begin between you and Christ as he invites you first and foremost into his household. But then... It must start and flow into others. It must move outwards into others. And maybe that means it needs to start with your family. After all, how you treat your family, it does reveal how you treat Christ's sacrifice. Or perhaps it needs to begin with your brothers and sisters in this community, in this church. After all, this is a community that Christ had shed his own blood or perhaps it needs to start with those who are living as strangers and enemies of God and his world, and they don't even know it. Therefore, as the people of God, would you now go? Would you now go and call your neighbors, whoever they may be, to come under your vine, to find true satisfaction, genuine joy, to come under your fig tree, to find an irrevocable blessing, an unshakable security. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that
though we have been convicted, though, though we are filthy, that we are unable to save ourselves, that we can't even stand before you as a holy God without fear of death, of rejection because of your pure and holiness. Lord, we thank you that you have given a solution, that you are able to strip us of our sin, that you are able to place it upon Christ, and in return, that you are able to clothe us in his wonderful robes, his turban. Lord, we thank you that we can receive his crown and garments because he would be crucified and crushed. But Lord, would you just give us that confidence, not only for us, but would you teach us that this cleansing, that this commissioning, it leads us to go out into our neighbors, to share this powerful message that you are king, that you have conquered, and that we must merely believe, that we place our faith in Christ and Christ alone, and that we would grow in our continual obedience to trust him as Savior and Lord. Until the day you call all of your people home, until the day you return in fullness and in splendor, would you give us strength to take one more stride, to talk to one more person, to reconcile with one more brother and sister. We lift up all these things in the strong name of Christ, we pray. Amen.